Hey everyone, it's Kyla. Welcome back to my channel where we talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. This is a show that I'm going to be talking about trade-offs. Things don't make any sense. <laughs> it's a trade-off, right? It's a trade-off. It's the trolley problem. It's second order effects. And there's just like life being gray. There's also the centralization and decentralization trade-off. Then the Federal Reserve's trade-off. Then Apple's trade-off and how the stock market is literally like just five stocks. Then the cybersecurity trade-off and sort of the reliance on legacy systems and what we could learn from Log4j. Then the true decentralization centralization trade-off. Then the energy trade-off. The crypto trade-off, which is... It's just kind of this segmentation of narrative creation, narrative resistance, and then narrative disruption. Then I talk about the dollar trade-offs. Then I talk about the happiness trade-offs. So essentially how we have these feedback loops, how, you know, you can't have happiness without unhappiness. I'm reading Dostoevsky, so hmm, there we go for that one. Then I have final thoughts on just all these different gray areas that we exist in and what it means for our functionality and within these different subsystems that we inhabit. Trade-offs. Trade-offs. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. For every choice A, there is a choice B, with a choice C, choice D, and choice Z sometimes thrown into the mix. Life is a function of evaluating these choices, of making weighted probability decisions around the different options that we face, most of the time. Do you sell or buy? Do you pick up the trash or leave it? Do you move or do you stay? Life is a series of small decisions wrapped up into several more big decisions, and some decisions are harder than others. It's the trolley problem, scaled. Do you pull the lever or not? But of course, outcomes are not finite. There are consequences from each decision that we make, from pulling the lever or not pulling the lever. It's not really option A, pull the lever, or option B, not pull the lever. There's a lot of gray area. Who is impacted by A? What carnage does B leave? What if the trolley loses a wheel and A turns into B? Etc. Our life is nothing but variance. That is why this gray area is what makes up most of our life. Not really A or B, but a mix of the two. A key part of the distribution. In life, on the most macroscopic scale possible, we have very good things, we have decently okay things, and we have very bad things. With, of course, plenty of gray area. This gray area is the most interesting part. What exists in the margins of good and bad, what makes something decent versus excellent, and what makes something horrible versus fantastic. Life is a distribution, but these tales are so fuzzy, right? Defining what is good and what is bad is something that belongs philosophers have been banging their heads into the wall about for thousands of years. The bad good gets fuzzy because of trade-offs. This gets into the centralization trade-off. Centralization is a core component of the life that we have, to a sometimes worrying degree. One of the main goals of crypto slash web 3 is modifying centralization to decentralization, making it so everyone has access to opportunity that key decisions aren't made in a boardroom by derivatives of the same five people. As Vitalik wrote in his recent excellent piece on bulldozers versus vitocracy, cryptocurrency proponents often cite Citadel interfering in GameStop trading as an example of the opaque centralized and bulldozery manipulation that they are fighting against. Web2 developers often complain about centralized platforms suddenly changing their APIs in ways that destroy startups built around their platforms. Vitalik goes on to describe in the piece the series of trade-offs between bulldozers and vitocracy relative to the authoritarian versus libertarian access, not necessarily centralization versus decentralization, but the ideas can be applied here too. The main point is that there's trade-offs. Everything is a mix, everything is a trade-off. The optionality around centralization on the path to decentralization is really what matters. Then this course it gets into the question, does decentralization really matter? Is this just a solution looking for a problem? As Balaji tweeted, the point is that you now have a choice of who to trust. You can trust a centralized service like Google. You can trust a partially centralized service like a crypto exchange that lets you withdraw your assets when you want, or you can trust yourself with full root control. This is optionality, this is ownership, 
relationship, this is flow of information, understanding the narrative, controlling your own data, and having an element of privacy, all of which are very important, and that's what decentralization is meant to offer, choice. But centralization offers benefits too, like stability, reliability, elements of efficiency, etc. As told by Henry Mintzberg in The Structuring of Organizations, quote, the words centralization and decentralization have been bandied about for as long as anyone has cared to write about organizations. So the breakdown ends up looking something like this, centralization and decentralization with gray in the middle. Centralization is an organization with coordination towards central goals, with decision rights reserved for the top of the hierarchy, and a rigid structure of authority. Whereas decentralization is collaboration towards complementing goals, decision rights accessible to everybody, and a more fluid structure. Centralization is both good and bad, there are trade-offs. Good, having core decision makers is more efficient in the current system. Bad, because of the overhead, eroding the efficiency. Decentralization is both good and bad too. Good, everyone gets a vote, equality and equity. Bad, can be prone to factions and high costs of reconciliation. After all, everyone has different opinions. So the breakdown ends up looking roughly something like this, where you have the gray area that exists between the two, which begs the question, what is centralized decentralization and decentralized centralization? I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but there are gray areas, so decentralization is collaboration all the way down to flexible structure, and centralization is coordination all the way down to standardization. But just like the trolley problem, it isn't A, centralization, or B, decentralization. It's more like A, centralization with situational trust and some element of optionality, or B, decentralization with total ownership with access to a support system. For example, decentralized centralization already exists. In DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, there ends up being quasi-leaders that direct most of the operations and make decisions. And with decentralized decentralization, due to the massive administrative burden, there ends up being many decentralized decision processes rolling up to the big decision. So we end up in the gray yet again, with decentralized centralization and centralized decentralization. And this gets into an example such as the Federal Reserve's trade-off. So where does that centralized versus decentralized narrative lie? The Federal Reserve is a centralized decision maker with Jerome Powell driving the car. They have a huge trade-off, one of the most difficult because of the impacts that it has and the sheer difficulty of getting the balance right. The Fed has to optimize for maximum employment and price stability, which is their dual mandate, really better described as their dual balance. They need people to be employed, but not too employed, and price stability. They need prices to inflate, but not inflate too fast. Inflation is increasingly a political tool, and the impacts are not evenly distributed. Then all of that boils down into economic growth. They have to ensure that, or else there will be anger from politicians. And they have to ensure this without making the economy grow too fast, while ensuring that it isn't flatlining. But of course, there are other things that weigh on the Fed's dual balance, such as other central banks. They have to balance international monetary policy from other central banks, such as the surprise rate hike from the Bank of England, and corporate debt, which is at all-time highs and that'll squeeze at higher rates because those companies will have a higher payload on the debt that they currently carry. Also, supply chains are a mess, raw materials are quite expensive, and the labor market is quite weird. The worst part of all this, and something that the decentralization-centralization trade-off can't really fix, is that the Fed's tools might not be able to work. As Harley Bassman wrote, it is likely the Fed has broken the correlation between interest rates and inflation. Decentralization doesn't matter if the process outcome connection is broken. And so that brings the question, how do you raise rates and slow speed a taper in order to get into that red dot in the middle graph below with regards to the Fed's dual mandate? How do they get to where they want to be if their tools are not going to let them get there? 
It's really an art. It's trial and error. And if the tools are broken, it won't work. It doesn't matter if it's decentralized or centralized. If it's broke, it ain't fixin'. Everything is a tightrope. The Fed might have to modify to reevaluate their trade-offs, to choose inflation over employment, or to choose debt levels over reigning in home prices. And we will see them walking this tightrope over the next several months over their path to tightening, aka probably choosing inflation over the labor market at this point. And with that being said, politics, which inflation increasingly has become, is really just a massive gray area. From a centralization risk standpoint, the fact that we have one guy, Manchin, who can nuke an incredibly important deal is quite bad. Everything sort of reverts back to self-interest, that's what we do as humans, it reverts back to money, which is why the stock market is not the economy, but it also most definitely is. This is the Apple trade-off. Apple is a core part of the S&P 500 and has been carrying tech on its back, and it's really like six companies that are carrying the market, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Tesla, and Amazon. The rest of the market is just sort of dragging along. This graph from Goldman does an interesting job at detailing that. About 35% of the S&P 500's return is coming from these five main stocks. They are the foundation propping up the 500 others. That creates kind of a funny environment when these five big boys take a tumble, impacting the performance of the S&P 500 with the rest of the market staying up. As shown in this graph, after Thursday's post-FOMC sell-off, despite 8 of the 11 sectors being up, the S&P 500 was down on the day. And then that question becomes, what is a stock market? Is it really only six stocks driving the performance of the index and thus the drag of the index? What is the centralization risk of that? Is it the S&P 500 or is it really the S&P 5? What is the vulnerability of that? Are managers just matching five stocks? And if so, what does that mean for centralization risk for the market? Where is the gray area? This gets into the cybersecurity trade-off. The log4j vulnerability is another centralization trade-off. In real life, it would be the same as you giving the keys to your house to a random stranger you just saw pass in front of you without even realizing. That's essentially what log4j is, but on the internet. It shows us that we can't rely on small, under-resourced, and under-acknowledged teams to uphold the entire internet. It also shows us how fragile the systems that we have are, and how fragile they could become if we don't take care of them. It is a huge software flaw and vulnerability, and it is in the basis of open source, of volunteers, of people who want to build a better internet. But better requires investments, and pivots away from continuous patching, small fixes to the branches instead of fixing the problem at the root. Also AWS. Whatever the heck is going on there? Centralization risk of the cloud is real. But this circles back to the gray area of the decentralization and decentralization table. Here, the trade-offs aren't really representation, it's risk, and this applies to the stock market conversation too. It's a balance between monopoly and distribution, between control and self-ownership to accessibility and serviceability. Decentralization, distribution, all the apples are in separate baskets, control and self-ownership, you can pick the apples whenever you want and put them into the basket any way that you want. Centralization, monopoly, all the apples are in one basket and one bad apple can ruin the whole batch. Accessibility and serviceability, the centralized party takes care of pretty much everything and is usually easy to use. Once again, trade-offs. One party controls it all but makes it easy to use, or total control and self-ownership but no one to call when things go wrong. Part of the problem is that people are based into their comfort, so we expect to have someone to call when something goes wrong. 90% of customers expect brands and businesses to offer a self-service online portal. That's not happening in Web3. This was very apparent with the Adidas foray into NFTs. You can't call anyone for support, especially not Ethereum with an I, because there really isn't anyone to call. 
And that's a huge narrative shift for us. As Mondo said on AWS, their prices are lower, their service is superior, and generally they guarantee an extremely high level of reliability. But since they provide services to a majority of websites in the cloud services space, when they encounter an error or problem, it feels like the entire internet has gone down. Once again, the gray area, having someone to call or owning your information, a trade-off between the two. And eventually there'll be some sort of reconciliation, but this is how it is for right now. And this gets into the energy trade-off. This really gets into the trade-off and balance of low prices and reliability with the massive trade-off of the future of our planet. The main thesis here is incremental, thoughtful progress is better than no progress at all. New York City just instated a mandate that would require new homes to have all electric heating and cooking, which is good. It is good that we are making progress in this direction, but the influence of legacy systems in the energy world are undeniable, and they sure are hard to pivot away from. And of course, electricity still uses natural gas. And there are many reasons why it's important to shift to electricity and good for New York City to make this decision, including removing fumes from homes, moving towards electricity that will soon be produced with clean energy rather than natural gas, and the efficiency of heat pumps. I know this, but with Diablo Canyon shutting down and Sweden having to revert to oil fire generating capacity because of the energy crisis in Europe, I worry about the gray area here. The energy secretary of the US just told oil rigs to ramp up production because of course, we're still overly reliant on oil. This results in the green energy policy and investment feedback loop. Green energy is not yet ready to support systems. That leads to power outages. We revert back to dirty energy. It's time lost and climate cost, and we try to transition again. It's a huge trade-off. We make the transition, which is good, but it's not ready for us due to underinvestment, which is bad. Power outages happen bad. We end up having to revert bad, and we lose even more time and expense on the earth. As Europe is showing, it's very expensive to do this. Then the question becomes, what is the cost of incremental progress? What does it actually look like to move forward? What should the cost be from transition? How should we calculate the trade-offs from relying on legacy systems which have their own fatal flaws to switching to these newer systems. Ideally, and please note I say ideally, it would look something like this. Green energy systems are able to support us, power is stable and clean, dirty energy dissipates, we make progress towards saving the earth, and we invest heavily in green energy with nuclear too. And there's also the locus of control problem, who owns what and why. Russia currently has a bit of a chokehold on Europe and are squeezing them out. Once again, that pesky centralization, decentralization problem comes up. In an attempt to green themselves, Europe had to begin to rely on Russia for natural resources, which isn't a super great partner just based on current politics, and Russia can squeeze. So yes, it's a trade-off. This gets into crypto. Crypto is a great example of a transition from legacy to new systems. For anything to be made, it has to have some element of narrative to get adoption. For crypto, the path has looked something like this. Narrative creation, narrative resistance, and narrative disruption. I want to caveat this entire section with the following. People's intentions are often gray, but we think that people are going to say the most extreme of what they mean, so this results in narrative disruption. This gets into narrative creation. I love crypto, I am fascinated by what it is capable of, and there are so many builders in the space who are doing amazing things. But grift economy is alive and well in both crypto markets and regular markets, of course, and there is a level of frustration that comes from watching it unfold. There's a calibration that comes with new markets, and grifting is a core part of that. Markets must grift in order to find out what grifting isn't. As my friend Jack wrote in his piece, The Golden Age of Grift, we are in the middle of a trillion dollar game of musical chairs. Except some people think that their chair can't disappear, other people sit in a chair before the music actually stops, and a few players just pick up a chair and leave the room altogether. The only losers are the people who are actually following the rules. This is an important point. The losers are the people following the rules. The old adage, rules are meant to be broken, is strong across all aspects of life. 
rules in most instances, please go the speed limit, are a gray space to play in. Those that test the gray the most, especially in new markets, will benefit the most. And it ends up being that distribution, who's the smartest, who's the dumbest, and the smartest snow and the dumbest snow, grift his game. It's only the midwit. The rules must be followed at all times and not following the rules should result in automatic losses. That's just not how things are played. It's really just an unfortunate aspect of life because we have human-based systems, so they're going to be vulnerable to human-based exploits. Humans like to play games, Darwinian winnings of survival, and survival is a function of tribal games such as insider trading and psyops. Just like in all new markets, there's a lot of rug pulling, a lot of money grabs, a lot of behind the scenes info gathering in crypto. And because of extreme interpretation of the information problem, all we often see, or perhaps pay attention to, is a rug pull project that makes a large portion of those that play the game end up as exit liquidity. CE Joe of Dong tweeted at me, which is perfect. There's always folks who will find exploits and game the system. Mitigating the negative impact they have on a broader ecosystem is really the only thing that you can hope to do. With any kind of governance system on-chain or in real life. You just have to mitigate. If we have to zoom out all the way, it's not a good or bad thing. It's just a gray area. It's just a thing. It's a calibrating system, and traditional finance is just as bad, if not worse. And truthfully, Crypto slash Web3 is building some incredible things for the world. But the gray, the gray, the gray. So you have these people who also sit on the distribution, knowing that the system is calibrating. With all that being said, it's exciting, right? Building the future, rethinking structures, it's amazing. Being a part of it is even better, which is why it's important to create accessible on-ramps to Crypto slash Web3 for everybody. But this gets into narrative resistance. There's massive resistance to crypto because it doesn't feel like this world is built for everybody. Open source for who? Collaborative to who? Decentralized by who? And things have to have a narrative that makes sense for everybody. It's a tall order, I know, and it's totally unfair to ask. But alas. For this, we have to return back to the decentralization framework. Is ownership the most valuable thing that Web3 slash crypto can even offer? Probably not, considering the true things that society needs, access and opportunity. Crypto slash Web3 will become as important as Web2, I believe that, at the beginning of the internet. But the storytelling might need to evolve so people aren't isolated from the growth. And this leads to narrative disruption, because you have narrative violators that have a massive sway over public opinion, like Elon Musk. For something that is trying to continually define itself in the public eye, crypto slash web 3, having actors like Elon can derail everything, especially when he says that Dogecoin is better to buy things than with Bitcoin. It doesn't quite fit into the narrative that crypto is trying to offer the world. He has continually spoken out against elements of the web 3 model, even calling it BS. Elon is the pinnacle of tech in the eyes of many, and to have him outspoken against the next wave of tech isn't a great narrative advancement tool. However, the narrative comes in different packages. Boiled down, crypto is a reimagining of how the world works. It's taking things from Web 2, taking things from the finance world, and tying them together into a package. And everyone wants the world to get better. The repenting of society is happening all over. If you turn around, the anti-work movement, covered brilliantly by all thoughts, has a lot of the same intonations. We want to keep working, just on our terms. We want to overhaul the existing systems to benefit the people in them more. We want to rewrite how we think about economic structures. So as crypto Web3 calibrates, there is a bubbling of the same sort of sentiment across other sections of society. The most interesting part will be if they can combine, if the frameworks that we've had in our minds for how the world is are going to morph. As Tracy Alloway summarized it, and I wonder, I sometimes wonder how much of the tension between workers and employees could be alleviated if people were A, just nicer, and B, if they were able to set expectations and actually stick to them. The gray area of being nice could definitely solve a lot of the problems that we have. This gets into the dollar trade-off. System calibration is what the US dollar relies on. It's a very delicate balance. The reserve currency is a dance of geopolitics and monetary base. You'll often hear we are going to have hyperinflation, implying infinite dollars, and the purchasing power of the dollar will go to zero, implying a value of zero. The dollar 
dollar actually is backed, not by gold, no, but backed by guns and taxes. After all, taxes and death are the only two certainties in life. The dollar as reserve currency is more than just the dollar being the dollar. It's transactional, it's a monetary base, it's symbolic, it's political stability. When people talk about the dollar being printed into oblivion, it's important to note that the dollar is symbolic as well as transactional. It's how we buy things, but it's also how we maintain trade deals and conduct international negotiations. The dollar is currency and money, and funnily enough, it's also a tool, if you will. Can it be replaced? Maybe. But the militaries are sort of the end state of all civilizations, which does create a funky valuation model for the US dollar, considering the power of the military. And this gets into the happiness trade-off. I don't really have a great segue here, but one of the funny things about humans is that we live within feedback loops, both positive and negative. Our entire lives are dictated by external influences, as annoying as that might be to admit. This is, of course, a functionality of environment. You have to respond and react to stimuli. Of course, the nature of the response is the most interesting part. We might not be able to choose if we respond, but we are able to choose how we respond to a certain extent. When we respond, we are creating an action. Things gain value in relation to their opposites. Every force has an opposite and equal reaction, etc. Our responses are calibrated based off nature and nurture, our current environment, and the experiences that shaped us. Dostoevsky was a man that existed across all edges of the good-bad distribution. To Dostoevsky, the suffering was not meant to be avoided. It colored the edges of our lives, made our experiences that more robust. Because what is the beauty of happiness if not tinged by unhappiness? Could you even have happiness without the absence of unhappiness? I think that's literally one of the hardest parts about being human, <laughs> is the grayness. The fact that we don't exist in a vacuum, that our emotions are unregulated entities in our bloodstream chasing thoughts and wreaking havoc. We also have an instantaneous culture, something I've written on before. We have no desire to delay even a blip of happiness, although that happiness might not be the best for us, that the happiness eats away into future unhappiness, but in the game of trade-offs, it's all about the short term and buy now pay later, as shown by the BNPL offering on this Papa John's pizza. And this gets into some final thoughts. This was a stream of consciousness, and I apologize, but I think my biggest takeaway over the past few weeks is that nothing makes sense, and, and that's okay. And yes, you should subscribe to me for these incredible takes on nothingness. And it's a terrible conclusion to this very long piece, but everything is relative, since making is simply unpacking what doesn't make sense with the puzzle pieces of things that do make sense, but the puzzle is never really finished. There's a story from Alan Watts that talks about a thought exercise in condensing life. In this dream world, you can choose everything that happens. You can design the most perfect, beautiful life. Soon you would add variants to the dream, things that would surprise us, even adding in bad things. We wouldn't want to know it was a dream at all. It actually reverts back to the life that we have, a dream state of variance and understanding that it's not perfect because perfection would be imperfection. The gray areas are where we spend most of our time, as Dostoevsky wrote in The Idiot. It's life that matters, nothing but life, the process of discovering the everlasting and perpetual process, not the discovery itself at all. And because it's subjective, because of the variance that we inject, because of our own humanness, the systems are just a series of trade-offs, a gray for less gray one day, a gray for more gray the other trade-offs. So I hope you enjoyed that little bit of a different format. Just wanted to try it. If you like this piece, you can go ahead and read it on Substack. So I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on all these different platforms. If you want to find me, I am there. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope that you are doing okay and staying safe out there. And I will talk to you all soon. Bye.